Hey there, here and now, anytime listener. If you like this show, we'd love it if you followed us or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Also, I know you hear this a lot, but if you can leave a rating or review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It just takes a second and it helps us a lot. Of course, you can also tell your friends to subscribe. That helps too. And thanks. Now here's the show. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. That's the message Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he delivered to Russia's foreign minister today. It's Thursday, March 2nd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, there was nothing. That's what one official told the Washington Post about a new report undermining claims by American spies that foreign governments sickened them with mysterious energy weapons. And with former President Jimmy Carter receiving hospice care, we tackle some misconceptions about what hospice is and why people pursue it. But first, in the years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there have been no face-to-face talks between the top American and Russian diplomats. That changed today when Secretary Blinken met briefly with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in India. There may not have been a diplomatic breakthrough, but the meeting is still noteworthy. And to tell us why, we connected with NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman. Here's Scott Tong. And Michelle, we just heard some harsh words for Russia from Antony Blinken But what is the U.S. government signaling by having this diplomatic meeting in the first place? Um, Yeah, I mean, first of all, it wasn't like a real sit-down meeting. It was 10 minutes in the corridor at an international conference of the G20. But what um, Blinken is trying to to do is show the world that that the U.S. can keep lines of communication open with Moscow. And it wasn't just on Ukraine. you know, there's also the issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, the U.S. and Russia have the world's largest nuclear arsenals. Russia recently suspended its participation in the only treaty that caps those arsenals, the New START uh, Accord. Mm-hmm. Um, and Blinken says he urged Lavrov to get back into compliance with the New START Treaty. He says that's what the world expects of them, to be able to manage this relationship. And then you heard on Ukraine, he said that the U.S. and, and Ukraine want a peace, but they want the peace to be just and durable. And that means Russia has to respect Ukraine's sovereignty. Blinken's line is basically Putin started this war and it can end it. And he said, you know, 18 of the G20 members called for a just peace. It was only Russia and China that were the outliers. Mm -hmm. Blinken also restated a warning to China, which he said is considering sending weapons to Russia. What leverage does the U.S. have over Beijing now? Well, probably not much, but the leverage they think they have um, is Hmm. sanctions or the threat of sanctions and maybe just public shaming. Um, China has done a lot to support Russia over the past year economically and diplomatically. Um, U.S. officials say so far that aid has not extended to lethal aid um, to Russia, but they believe that China is considering that. And the idea here is to deter it, to say that, you know, they'll face sanctions if they do. So that's, I think, why we've been hearing Secretary Blinken and others talk about this a lot lately, both in private with the Chinese and in public. And as far as Russian diplomats, what have they said at this G20 summit? 
Well, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, um, he presented um, at the G20. He talked about that there's been aggressive Russophobia around the world. He complained about the U.S. and others pumping Ukraine with weapons um, for what he called a war against Russia. Uh, the problem with his argument is that much of the world... Um, and that includes 141 countries in the U.N. General Assembly, have made clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine violates the U.N. Charter. Um, and, and the war does have implications for countries around the world. It's upended food and energy markets around the world. Um, Lavrov tried to blame the West for all of that. Um, I'm not sure most countries uh, believe Russia's spin on that, though. Now, the U.S. And, and NATO allies, many countries have been pressuring Russia, uh, potentially trying to isolate Russia. But is it isolated? We do know that India and China, for instance, are buying a lot of oil from Russian companies. Yeah, and, and India and China also abstained from that those UN votes, um, not taking sides. Um, and China is kind of presented, trying to present itself as kind of a peacemaker, laying out a 12-point plan, not really a plan, but kind of principles for what would require, would, would bring about an end mm -hmm. to it. Um, I think mostly a lot of countries are just tired of this war and want to see the war ended um, and have to deal with Russia. So I think that's what you're, you're seeing now. I mean, Russia hasn't been isolated. It's still part of the G20. That's Michelle Kellerman, NPR diplomatic correspondent. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. There's more news in statecraft today. With a major blow to the theory some government officials branded Havana Syndrome. Hundreds of American spies and diplomats have blamed a variety of illnesses on a mysterious weapon supposedly wielded by foreign governments. But after studying the issue for years, five U.S. intelligence agencies have found no evidence for those claims. Peter O'Dowd has more after the break. Well, the mystery behind the so-called Havana syndrome has only gotten deeper. The U.S. intelligence community says that a foreign adversary is not to blame for the unexplained illnesses that have severely injured American diplomats and intelligence officers serving around the world. So that puts an end to a provocative theory that a country like Russia or China used a weapon that harnessed energy waves to injure Americans. Shane Harris has been reporting on the government investigation for The Washington Post, and he joins us now. Shane, welcome. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. So what a story. The CIA director says this was one of the largest investigations the agency has ever done. What exactly did they find or not find, as the case may be? Right. Well, they looked to see if they could find a foreign actor, whether that's a government or some other organization or group that had been behind these mysterious illnesses that had been reported by nearly a thousand people, uh, ranging from strange ringing in the ears to pressure to headaches, nausea, in some cases forcing them to leave their jobs and causing really debilitating symptoms. And what they essentially came up with is they came up empty. <laughs> these seven intelligence agencies looked through piles and piles of information for several years and cannot attribute these symptoms to the result of an attack by a foreign adversary, nor could they find any kind of mechanism, whether that be an energy weapon, for instance, or some kind of surveillance device, perhaps, that had a side effect of causing these symptoms. They simply couldn't come up with it, nor could medical experts, in the end, intelligence officials said, diagnose what people were feeling as an actual syndrome. In most cases, mm. they could actually attribute the symptoms to other illnesses or pre-existing conditions or environmental factors. 
Okay, so if it's not a foreign adversary, if it's not an energy weapon, what theories are we left with? I mean, does environmental factors in pre-existing conditions, I mean, that, that can't be satisfying to the victims. No, it's definitely not to the victims. I mean, certainly there are some people in that group of nearly a thousand or a thousand or so uh, who I think were able, they were able to attribute those to other conditions and, and no doubt many of them are glad that they could and maybe have an answer. But for these few dozen or so of what CIA officials have called the toughest cases that just defied any easy explanation, it's not clear, you know, what's going to happen with them. I mean, I've met some of these people and they they have... They're plagued by headaches. They can't work. Um, this has caused tremendous emotional distress to them as well. And, and many of them are very frustrated that they feel that officials and investigators haven't taken them seriously and, and are very sensitive to any kind of suggestion that they are somehow either making up the symptoms or that they're imagining them. And it's something that intelligence officials have really tried to stress in recent years, that they genuinely believe that these people are suffering from something. They're not saying that they're malingering. They don't think it's something that they've imagined. But they just cannot come up with an explanation. NPR's Greg Myrie spoke with Mark Zaid, uh, an attorney who represents two dozen of these victims. And here's what Zaid told us. I can at least say the U.S. government has a lot more information than what it is publicly revealing today. And that is where a lot of the unanswered questions arise from. What do you think about that? Did your reporting give you a sense that the public's not getting the full story here? Well, Mark is right that there's a lot of information that's not being revealed. I mean, most of this report is, in fact, classified. I think that what he's getting at is that there may be other kinds of intelligence sources that if maybe outside groups were able to look at them or kind of verify them on their own, they might come to different conclusions. It's important to note, too, there is a, a group that's somewhat like that. There was an independent panel of experts that was convened by the intelligence community. And what they came up with was a plausible hypothesis for how an adversary could create essentially an energy weapon, that it could be something they could conceal, that they could move around, and that it could explain these symptoms. Their final report has never actually been released. The intelligence community has only given out a summary of it. And people involved in that process also feel that the government has not been fully transparent about the investigation. So what do you still want to know? Well, I want to know as much as I can, but I would really like to know more about what the government might think in terms of what foreign adversaries have in terms of not necessarily an energy weapon, but maybe ambitions to build one, or do they have the technology to obtain it? They've Ultimately, officials have said they, they see no signs of that, but that would be interesting to know more about. The Defense Department is also doing its own investigation. So while the intelligence community kind of is closing the books on this chapter of Havana Syndrome, the Pentagon has some other kind of inquiry going on. And I think that a lot of people, myself included, would like to know more about that. And probably that's where the reporting will take us next. Well, and finally, Shane, I can't help but think about the victims here. What kind of help have they been getting? I mean, you said that some of them are still suffering from these symptoms. That's right. So many of them have gotten special medical treatment, uh, and they actually praised the government for helping get that treatment for them, getting them into programs in some cases for treating traumatic brain injuries or other symptoms that folks have experienced. So the government is now taking them seriously in that regard and, and trying to help them get health care. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better, these victims say, than it was a few years ago. There's also legislation that's been passed, passed uh, something called the Havana Act, which provides monetary compensation for some people. So in some cases, 
cases anywhere from a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. These people might be eligible for. That's meant to offset, you know, lost wages, medical bills. Ultimately, it you know it may only be you know a portion of what they ultimately lost in terms of their earnings and what they paid out, but it is something, and that has been a real turnaround from a few years ago when I think people in the intelligence community and in government agencies kind of dismissed these claims in many cases. Well, something is causing these symptoms. We hope someday to figure out what it is. Shane Harris, an intelligence and national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Coming up, when people with terminal illnesses choose to stop seeking a cure and instead focus on comfort at the end of life, they enter hospice care. That's what former President Jimmy Carter is doing in his home in Plains, Georgia. But there are misconceptions about what hospice is. We'll clear a few up after the break. Jimmy Carter's decision to enter hospice care had many of us at Here and Now wondering what that really entails, and discussing why people might choose to do it. We wanted to learn more, so we called up a hospice nurse. Rebecca Gatton is chief clinical officer with the nonprofit Avow Hospice in Naples, Florida. In a minute, we'll hear from one of her patients. But first, here's Rebecca's conversation with Peter. With respect to the former president's privacy, we don't know exactly what his day-to-day condition is. But when a person makes the decision to enter hospice care at home like he did, what are those final days or weeks of life typically like? Well, in order to enter home hospice, a patient does need a prognosis of six months or less. So we really hope that people um, do sign on to hospice early so that they can benefit from all the services. Nurses, home health aides, social workers, chaplains, volunteers, and music and massage therapists. So, yeah, we really want to focus on the quality of life for the patient and their family when the patient is deciding no longer to receive a curative treatment, such as chemotherapy or some type of aggressive measure. So, as you said, if you have something like cancer, you would stop chemotherapy, but does that mean you would stop taking all medications? No, definitely not. And that's a misconception about hospice. Hospice patients typically remain on several medications. Um, We wouldn't want to stop something that would be harmful to the patient. I'm sure many people are concerned about cost, especially if there was a long illness involved or a catastrophic injury. Is it covered by most insurance? Well, the great thing is Medicare covers hospice 100% in the home, such as the nursing and nursing assistance and medications. Private insurance typically has a deductible or a copay, and these are typically younger patients with um, such as a cancer diagnosis. And if they are with a nonprofit hospice, then if they are unable to pay that deductible or copay, they can apply for financial assistance. The goal is that no one suffers without hospice, and there are hospices out there to take care of all patients. I know uh, sometimes people will say when considering this difficult choice, like, I don't want to give up. Hospice care Mm -hmm. is giving up. Do you ever hear that? Yes, Um, and research shows that by being on hospice, patients can actually live longer. The patients and families are able to focus on themselves and not all of the care and medications and worrying about all of that. So by joining hospice, they're not giving up. They're giving themselves that time back and that quality of life. Hmm. 
do you see that families sometimes wait too long to make the decision? Yes. The number one complaint on our customer service surveys that come back after the patient passes is, I wish I would have known about hospice sooner. So this moment in the arc of a person's life is so crucial. Most people, I think, run away from death. You have stood by its side uh, all these years. I wonder if you've learned something in your experience that you'd like people to know. Yes, I've been in healthcare for over 25 years. And when I found hospice um, about 12 years ago, I quickly realized even misconceptions I had about hospice weren't true. Um, We all are going to die. And I think, you know, knowing that I have the comfort of hospice when that happens for me or my loved one is, is really important for me, making sure that the quality of life is there for everyone. Rebecca Gatton is Chief Clinical Officer at Avow Hospice in Naples, Florida. Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. And we actually have the pleasure of speaking with one of the patients that Rebecca's organization cares for. John Shannon is 81 years old. He's originally from Des Plaines, Illinois. He has terminal stage four pancreatic cancer and is in hospice care. Now, John, thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with us. I really appreciate it. No problem, Peter. Glad to help out if I can. Yeah, sure. And it sounds like you've probably had a pretty rough road lately. How are you doing? Uh, actually not bad. Um, uh, the chemotherapy I've been on for the last, uh, year and a half or a little bit more, uh, was not effective anymore. And it was actually causing, uh, more uh, weakness and damage to my body than the cancer was. Yeah. Can you tell us about the decision that you and your family made to stop that treatment, to stop trying to cure the cancer? And to go into hospice, I mean, was that a difficult choice? Uh, no, I don't think it was because uh, uh, the whole family uh, was involved with me uh, and seeing how I was uh, going through uh, trials and tribulations with the chemo. And they thought I'd put up a pretty good fight. And uh, if the chemo wasn't helping anymore with uh, the pancreas and liver involvement, they thought it was maybe a, a good decision. Well, plus, uh, by doing this, you're able to spend time with your family instead of spending your final days in a hospital. Is that important to you? Exactly. All of our four daughters have rotated through here to spend time with us and to assist us. And uh, it's really been uh, a lovely time for us to, uh, you know, let, let each other know how much we love them and value them and everything. So it's it's really been very nice. Hmm. It's been about a month since you've transitioned to hospice care. Uh, what has your team of nurses helped you with in that time? Oh, geez, everything. Uh, all I have to do is uh, talk to my registered nurse, Heather. Uh, she's coming up with prescriptions for, uh, you know, sleeping aids. Uh, Heather can actually drain my uh, stomach cavity, which builds up with fluids, and she's doing that uh, two or three times a week now at at my house, so we don't have to travel to uh, any hospitals and spend the whole day there. What have you been reflecting on in the last uh, month or so since you've made this decision to to go into hospice care and spend your final days this way? Well, the um, 
I guess you always contemplate uh, your final days and, uh, you know, wish and your value every every hour, every minute, every day. That's our motto now, one day at a time. And uh, we don't really have any regrets. My wife and I, we've been blessed with uh, a, a good life, a good family. And we, we, we're really ready, um, if we have to take that final step here in the next couple of months, uh, to take it. Uh, the only thing I wanted to make sure I try to avoid is I don't want to go through a lot of pain. But that's exactly what hospice is set up to take care of so that you don't suffer. How are your daughters taking it? Did they want uh, you to keep fighting? No, no, no. They all four or four of my daughters uh, got on board right away, and they under, understood our situation. And they've been they've been just wonderful. Can't can't ask for better. Well, John Shannon, uh, everyone is more than their illness. So, what else would you like people to know about you? Oh, she's hopefully that I was a, a good person when I was here. You know, I. I did my community service by uh, serving on our local school board in Harlington Heights, Illinois, for about 16 or 17 years. And, of course, uh, my number one objective was, uh, you know, to raise raise a great family, and I think I was successful in doing that. Thanks, thanks also to my lovely wife, Peg. <laughs> All right. John Shannon, a hospice patient in Naples, Florida, uh, wishing you, your four daughters, and peg uh, peace in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, no problem. Thank you. That's it for the show today. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories. Today, we've got a look at why some Ukrainians have chosen to work with their Russian occupiers. In wartime and occupation, the idea of having access to food, medicine, other goods that might be in short supply looks very tempting. Find that at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon and Sam Rafelson. Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Mike, me, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.